Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today's story, The First Thanksgiving, Looking Back, offers a well-researched glimpse of what really happened during that first celebration at Plymouth back in 1621, who was there, and what they experienced. I guarantee you, regardless of your level at history, you'll hear things in this story that you hadn't heard before. As our families prepare to gather together to give thanks for the blessings we've received, many of you may find yourselves on the road and listening to podcasts between your favorite radio shows, news, and music. Our lives and worries are very different today from those of the pilgrims who invited their closest Indian allies, the Wampanoag, and their Sachem, Massasoit, to three days of feasting, games, shooting matches, and military demonstrations. One thing has never changed. It's amazing how good beer and good food can bring people of totally different backgrounds together. But it wasn't all fun and games. The people celebrating during those three days in 1621 were basically a handful of survivors from a deadly winter of cold and starvation. Their Indian alliance was only as good as long as it was beneficial for both sides. There were a lot of different personalities banded together as a tight group at Plymouth Colony. There was constant squabbling, and there were efforts from the outside to undermine it. Surviving Plymouth Colony and growing was going to take all the leadership effort that William Bradford could provide, and all the courage that the beleaguered colonists could muster up. Thanks to the diary of their newly elected governor, William Bradford, as well as other accounts, we have a pretty accurate picture of how they celebrated that first harvest feast that later came to be called Thanksgiving. It had been a very difficult 11 months since the Mayflower had dropped anchor on November Day in 1620 near what we now call Plymouth in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. They had been delayed, and now had to face the oncoming cold winter with very little food or shelter. Many died of cold, starvation, and sickness. The pilgrims didn't bring the sickness. Six years previous, a virus had been introduced, possibly by fishermen on the main coast, and it spread like wildfire through the tribes of New England, who, until the arrival of the European, had not suffered a plague. It was an unintended consequence that happened to isolated cultures as the world's population expanded. As with all our other histories at 1001, we'll tell history as it really happened, and let the chips fall where they may. There is a terrific story here to be told, and it involves men and women who were willing to risk everything they knew and loved behind to pursue freedom in a strange new world. Some sought religious freedom, some sought a new life and a second chance. Risking everything is easy to say here in the space of a few words, but not so easy to do. They knew they would be sailing to a land with uncut forests offering harsh living conditions and a very hard life at best. But they had the strength, courage, and determination to build a new life from there. And they believed that God would guide them through it. Deep faith and conviction drove them. Contrary to some people's opinions, the pilgrims were not prudes or bookish or afraid to get blisters on their hands. They were extremely hard-working, honest, and God-fearing, and not averse to risk. They didn't bring sickness, they didn't slaughter Indians, they didn't come for riches, and they did not come to conquer anyone. They came to start a new life. One note on the word pilgrim. Actor John Wayne had it right when, in character as a Western man named Tom Donovan, he repeatedly referred to a newly arrived Easterner as pilgrim in the Western classic movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Wayne said pilgrim with respect, not as if he were saying it to a man who lacked courage but to a man who was newly arrived to a different life in a world where the rules were quite different. 
Here, men didn't wait for justice to step in to protect people. Lawlessness was rampant, and people had to stand up to it themselves. The Pilgrim, a young lawyer whose name was Ransom Stoddard, was played by Jimmy Stewart. If you ever get a chance, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a classic Western movie, and a good one. In the American West, as in the unsettled forests of the eastern United States in 1620, men and women survived or not, depending upon their ability to face the challenges head-on. There was no law, no government to step in when people faced a crisis. The Pilgrims would quickly earn a reputation as a pretty tough lot. Here at Plymouth Colony, eleven brutal months after their arrival, the survivors were celebrating their first harvest. The survivors being 22 men, four married women, and more than 25 children and teenagers. All that was left of 102 who had arrived months ago, along with one spaniel and a mastiff. The rest had been buried in unmarked graves so as not to tip off the Indians that the colony had been decimated, although the Indians knew. Those 102 had been packed into the tween decks of the Mayflower, where cold salt water leaked onto their heads, and where they had to steady themselves for more than ten weeks as the ship was tossed through storms and headwinds. What meager possessions they were able to bring were packed in the hold below them, and they were separated in this seventy-foot-long and five-foot-high dark space by whatever privacy walls they could create. They were for the most part families, men, women, and children, and their biggest enemy, having run out of firewood, was the cold and lack of nourishment. There were three pregnant mothers, Elizabeth Hopkins, Susanna White, and Mary Allerton. Elizabeth Hopkins had given birth to a son on the voyage, whom she named Oceanus, and Susanna and Mary were well advanced with their pregnancies. It had been a hard voyage in every respect. There were delays, seasickness, cold, and the ridicule of many of the sailors, who thought they were religious fanatics who had lost their minds. But those sailors' attitudes turned around. At midpoint in the voyage, a bad wave had cracked a structural timber topsides, and the captain had said they needed to turn back. But these people were not about to quit. The pilgrims had brought a screwjack, which they dug out of the hold, and with that and their labor, they made the repair, and the Mayflower sailed on. Although a portion of the group had signed on hoping to create a successful business venture, most of them were Puritans, English Puritans, Protestants who believed strongly that the Church of England had gone astray, so they left it. Their only option was to leave England and head for a more tolerant country, in this case, Holland. And these 400 in Leyden, Holland, were called separatists, and if Puritans were considered radical, separatists were on their fringe. They were willing to place the English Channel between themselves and the church, but Holland was changing, and these people, having heard of the settlement at Jamestown, wanted to build their families and lives the English way, but far from the reach of King James I and the cultural rot that they felt was England. The New World offered an answer to their wishes. They originally called themselves Separatists, or in some case, Methodists, but as the colony grew, they were called Pilgrims, and that term stuck. They had heard of the horrors of Jamestown. Of the 108 settlers that first year, 70 had died. The following winter, after more settlers had landed at Jamestown, brought the starving time, when 440 of 500 settlers were buried in just six months. There were Indians, there was starvation, there was scurvy. The pilgrims had read in the library in Leyden, Holland, the accounts of Indian torture, of their cooking captives in pots, 
of flaying captives alive using the sharp edges of shells. The Indians were called savages, and by any comparison with European man, they were. So the pilgrims prayed, to go or not to go? What would the future be for their children? They were tradesmen, mothers, housewives, not warriors. They talked to each other and to their leader, William Bradford, who was a 30-year-old corduroy worker. They kept insisting they could do this. They were not like other men and women, Bradford later wrote, whom small things could discourage. They were not the type to turn and run when hardship faced them. They knew, Bradford wrote, they were pilgrims. In addition to the cramped living conditions, half of the Mayflower's human cargo by the time they left Plymouth were not pilgrims. It was a mixed bag of persons whose goals and personalities didn't always mix well. In fact, there were plotters and seekers, malcontents, and even traitors, much like Jamestown, in the mix. It was due to plotters and self-serving profiteers that the Mayflower had gotten a very late start. That late start causing them to arrive at Plymouth with barely any time to secure crops and provisions needed to survive that first winter. It was going to take strong leadership here to survive it all and make it work. They first spotted land on Thursday, November 9, 1620, after 65 days at sea. They first saw land at Cape Cod, far north of their planned destination, which had been the mouth of the Hudson River. The captain wanted to reach a safe harbor soon, for all the obvious reasons. It was getting cold. But he was working with a southerly wind, so he let it take him as they proceeded slowly along the backside of the Cape. Now the passengers were on deck, having sighted land, all joyous, all pointing, some crying with relief. Two leadsmen were testing the waters and calling out the depths as Captain Jones cautiously edged along for five hours. They were drawing twelve feet of water, they passed what stands today as the seaside towns of Wellfleet, Eastham, Orleans, and Chatham. The pilgrims knew that a leader had to be chosen before they disembarked, and they drew up an agreement that would provide the group as a whole with a leader. It was later called the Mayflower Compact. It placed John Carver, a pilgrim, in the position of governor for one year. Forty-one men signed the agreement at 7 a.m. on the morning of November 11, 1620, just prior to Captain Jones bringing the ship into the large Provincetown Harbor. If you're looking at a map of the east coast of Massachusetts, you'll see what looks like a fishing hook pointing out to the right, east, of Massachusetts, with its barb point facing north. Just inside that barb is Provincetown Harbor. It was a low and sandy land, desolate looking. They had brought with them an open boat called a shallop, and the first trip brought 16 armed men to shore. That first foray, not knowing what they would encounter, must have seemed like an ancient memory to those few men who had survived to take part in this three-day feast and celebration that would later be called the first Thanksgiving. One of those men now enjoying the feast, Miles Standish, was no doubt mindful that Massasoit, with his ninety men, here now, enjoying the festivities, could have easily slaughtered everyone here. Standish was a five-foot, five-inch tall, red-haired, barrel-chested powerhouse with courage enough for two, and he had shown it numerous times. He had an equal amount of diplomatic savvy and was one of the men who helped to strike a lasting treaty with Massasoit, a treaty that helped protect them both from the warlike Narragansett tribe. Standish had been hired as the military leader for the group, and we'll talk more about him later. The crop they were celebrating on this first or second week of October 1621 consisted of corn, squash, beans, barley, and peas. Ducks and geese were plentiful. 
Bradford had ordered four men to go out fouling, and they brought back enough to feed the colony for a week. The Indians who had signed an alliance with the pilgrims for mutual benefit, namely Massasoit and his warriors, brought five freshly killed deer. Fires were built, and most of the men there squatted on their haunches, stood, or sat on the ground watching the deer and the wildfowl roasting over the open fires. According to Bradford's diary, there were also wild turkeys that fall. Turkeys had been exported to Spain from South America in the 1520s, reaching England by the 1540s. There was also a profusion of color coming from what trees they had. That was new to them, as England's cloudy fall days and warm nights didn't provide this kind of startling color. The pilgrims ate with fingers and knives, there being no forks, so you can't help but wonder how they ate the stews and vegetables that were cooking in pots. Food simmering in pots was then called pottage. For a moment, place yourself back in time and picture yourself as being a part of the celebration and feast. There were four married women, dressed in a combination of black, red, blue, and gray clothing, with long white collars, leather belts, and shoes with large buckles, and wearing bonnets to protect their hair. They were most likely tending the pots near the fires and serving hungry adults and keeping an eye on the kids, if you could do all that at once. Eleanor Billington was very likely working at one fire, while her husband John was very likely speaking with some other men. Their adolescent sons Francis and John Jr. were likely off entertaining themselves somewhere, which made some people nervous, as the boys had gotten into mischief before, notably when Francis accidentally discharged a musket on the Mayflower while it was docked, a blast which could easily have ignited the powder store, blowing the entire ship to pieces. Sixteen-year-old John became lost in the woods that May, just two months after his father, John Sr., had stirred up the ire of most of the pilgrims by berating Miles Standish in public, basically challenging his authority, and Miles Standish had been hired as the military authority of Plymouth. John had wandered off and was missing for five days, living on roots and nuts until he found an Indian village called Manomet, twenty miles from Plymouth. The Manomet Sacum knew trouble when he saw it and passed the boy off to the Nauset tribe and their Sacum Aspinet. This was a tribe which had attacked the pilgrims back in December. When the news got to Bradford, he had to take half the men at their settlement to try to retrieve the boy, leaving the settlement nearly undefended. Bradford and his men were soon surrounded by a hundred warriors, and one of them was carrying the boy. Why he was holding them, no one knows, except that John Jr. looked no worse for wear and had a string of shell beads around his neck. Bradford made peace by trading a new knife for the boy, whom Aspinet was no doubt glad to unload. Not to leave Eleanor Billington out, in 1636 she was sentenced to sit in the stocks and be whipped for slandering John Doan. At another fire stands Mary Brewster, who arrived at Plymouth with her husband William Brewster and two of her children, their names Love and Wrestling. Yes, wrestling, just like it sounds. Their son Jonathan was to arrive in a few weeks on the Fortune, the second ship to arrive at Plymouth, although she didn't know it at the time. My great-to-the-seventh-power grandfather on my mother's side, William Bassett, was on the fortune as well. Mary Brewster's daughters Patience and Fear arrived on the ship Anne in 1623. Mary's husband, William Brewster, was the senior elder and religious leader of the colony. He was a hero of the colony, and the town of Brewster, Massachusetts, bears his name. Elizabeth Hopkins was caring for her new baby, Oceanus, who, as you remember, was born on the voyage. Her husband Stephen had been to Jamestown, been in a shipwreck, and was stranded on Bermuda for one year, where he lost everything. 
When he finally made it back to England, he found that his wife and baby had died, but he still had two children, Constance and Giles. Stephen Hopkins married Elizabeth and started a new life. He was a weaver, and Elizabeth worked as his apprentice. That shipwreck he was in became Shakespeare's story, The Tempest. Stephen still wanted to return to the new world, where he believed there was hope for a new future for his family. He and Elizabeth signed on with a group called The Adventurers for this trip, and wanted to work to earn enough to be able to pay back the cost of their trip, and The Adventurers had a share in anything they did going forward. Lastly, among the women, there was Susanna White Winslow. She came to Plymouth with her husband, William White, and their son, whose name was Resolved. She gave birth to a new son named Peregrine, while the Mayflower was docked those first three days at Plymouth. Peregrine is the Latin form of the word pilgrim, in case you're interested. William had died February 1st during this past terrible winter, and she then married fellow passenger Edward Winslow a few months later. There was no purpose in being a lonely widow with two children in this ultimate game of survival, which was the struggling Plymouth Colony. We'll meet the 22 men who survived that first winter, right after this sponsor message. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, back to our story of the first Thanksgiving. Among the 22 surviving men that first Thanksgiving was 21-year-old John Alden, the ship's cooper, who took the option to stay with the colony and rose to be a prominent member of the Plymouth Colony. There was Isaac Allerton, who served as a financial assistant to the governor and later took on finance duties of resolving the colony's debt to the adventure group. Allerton's 15-year-old apprentice, Richard Moore, had been placed on the Mayflower with three of his siblings by his father Samuel, who had been angry with his wife, who had committed adultery, and he put the kids on the Mayflower outside of her knowledge. He had basically left them as orphans on their way to the New World. Richard's siblings all died that first winter. Richard survived, became extremely useful to Plymouth Colony, and later became a ship's captain. William Bradford, with his wife Dorothy, had sold his home, signed on to the voyage, and having arranged to leave their two-year-old son John behind with his grandfather, the reason being, as he wrote, not wanting him to have to endure the hardships of colony building, ended up as the long-term governor of Plymouth, where his leadership proved good. Dorothy accidentally fell overboard while the Mayflower was docked at Plymouth Harbor and drowned, and Bradford later married the widowed Alice Carpenter Southwith. Many believe that grief over having to leave her three-year-old son behind led Dorothy to jump. During that first winter, many of the colonists stayed on the ship in the harbor, where it was very cold, Food stores were low. It's hard to imagine the amount of stress that that hardship put on people. William Bradford and his new wife had three more children. In addition to his governance, he began writing the history of Plymouth Colony in 1630, and that has become the primary source for historians today. Bradford's son John did come over years later when he was able to travel. William Brewster became the senior elder and religious leader at Plymouth. His son Jonathan came on the second ship, the Fortune. Peter Brown, with regards to his being mentioned at Plymouth Colony, is best remembered for being lost in the woods that first January in 1621, along with John Goodman. 
They had been eating lunch when their dogs suddenly started chasing deer and they became disoriented. That night the temperatures dropped below freezing and there was snow. A search party was deployed but couldn't find them. The young men finally climbed a tall tree and were able to spot the harbor, making it home alive but with frostbite the following day. They had not been dressed warmly. Francis Cook's name appears on a number of small committees. He kept a low profile. He served as a juror on a number of occasions and was on the coroner's jury that examined the body of Martha Bishop, the four-year-old daughter who was murdered by her mother, Alice. This happened years later in 1648, many years after the Mayflower's arrival. She, the mother, Alice, admitted the murder, was tried and hung, becoming the first woman to be hung in the colonies. Miles Standish, who we mentioned already in this story, would be the John Smith prototype of Plymouth if you had to pick one. He had been hired as the military advisor for Plymouth Colony and took a leading role in government and in the defense of the colony. He also served as treasurer. He always showed courage and was known for taking preemptive action to thwart the enemy's plans. If he was criticized for one thing, it was his brutality in war when war was necessary. A monument was erected in his memory in Duxbury, the town he founded. Edward Doty was a feisty guy who arrived as one of two servants of Stephen Hopkins and was in and out of court 23 times during his long stay in the colony. He's best remembered, Edward Doty, for his sword and dagger fight with Hopkins' other servant, Edward Lester. Both survived the fight with cuts and were punished by having their head and feet tied together for one hour. It worked. He was known for his quick temper and his visits to court involved suits, countersuits, charges of fraud, slander, fighting, assault, theft, and many others, but he never received any physical punishments. He just ended up paying small fines when he was proved wrong. He must have liked to hunt. He had a license to own a firearm, and he was called upon to build a wolf trap in a neighboring town in later years. And yes, there were wolves in New England in the 1620s. There was also Francis Eaton, the carpenter, who gives us reason to believe that there probably were some tables built for that Thanksgiving feast, although many of these men probably knew carpentry well, and few could afford to have others build furniture or homes for them. And there was Samuel Fuller, who was the colony's doctor and a church deacon as well. John Howland came across as an indentured servant, and became the first assistant to the colony's first governor, John Carver, who died before his first term was over, and was replaced by William Bradford. Howland is best remembered for surviving being swept overboard in a storm on the way over, and having the strength and foresight to grab hold of the topsail lanyards before going over. He hung on for dear life, finding himself being dragged behind the ship sometimes six feet below the surface, until the crew was able to rescue him with a boat hook. Like some of the men previously mentioned, George Sowell arrived as an indentured servant, a situation which generally lasted until about age 25, and like others, got his acre of land when the land division took place in 1623. He married and had one son named Zechariah. He was very likely close to Miles Standish and served as the deputy of Duxbury for a number of years. He had also volunteered to fight in the Pequot War. William Trevor and a young man we only know by his last name, Eli, were both sailors on the Mayflower who volunteered to stay with the colony for one year, and they survived, but they both returned to sea when their year was up. Massasoit, the chief of the Wampanoag tribe, was present at the harvest feast. And Squanto, the English-speaking Indian ally of the pilgrims who had been kidnapped by Europeans some years ago, taken to England, had received education, escaped, and returned to New England to find his village empty and many of his people dead from disease. 
were two of the Indian notables at this affair. Ninety of Massasoit's braves had come in peace thanks to the alliance that had been forged between their tribe and the pilgrims, and there were no mishaps or flare-ups during the three days that were recorded. Samoset, the first Indian who the pilgrims had met back in March when he boldly strode into the pilgrims' village nearly naked despite the cold, pronouncing the words, "'Welcome, Englishman,' followed by, "'Do you have any beer?' was very likely present for the festivities as well. As it turned out, he was a sachem, or chief, of a tribe from Maine, and he had learned English from the fishermen who had come ashore at times to hunt for provisions. He told the pilgrims that the harbor they were in was called Patuxet, that the sachem for this area was a Poconocet chief called Massasoit, and that he knew of a man named Squanto who knew better English than he and could serve as a translator for them. Squanto's value to the pilgrims was priceless. Of his own tribe, the Nossets, Samoset was one of the few who had survived a plague back in 1614. As for Massasoit, he knew the pilgrims had come and was gathering intelligence from sub-tribes who were watching. Massasoit had not had good relations with Englishmen in the past. A little over a year ago, sailors from an English vessel had killed a number of his people without provocation. That had caused Massasoit to attack the explorer Thomas Dermer when he had arrived the following summer with Squanto at his side, and most of Dermer's men were killed in skirmishes on Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. Squanto, with his knowledge of English, became a valuable asset for Massasoit at that time, but Massasoit did not fully trust him for that same reason. There's an old saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And now at the Harvest Festival, William Bradford, whose responsibility was to protect his people and maintain the struggling colony, was constantly watchful of the Indian actions, having his men who were armed constantly on their guard, and keeping the largest stores of aquavitae and beer mostly out of sight. And although Squanto had proved himself a good ally, it was he who had convinced Massasoit that the English would make much better allies than enemies. Bradford never placed all his trust in Squanto either, believing Squanto had his own designs on power, which he did. When Bradford looked at Massasoit, he saw a savage, a large-bodied man who did not speak much and emanated power. Massasoit's face was painted dark red, his entire head glistened with bare grease. Around his neck he wore a wide necklace with shell beads and a long knife suspended from a string. His warriors also had fearsome painted faces, some white, some black, some red, some with crosses, others with other designs. Some had animal furs draped over their shoulders. Most were naked with hide thongs protecting their groins. Everyone possessed a stout bow and quiver full with arrows. One wonders just how much Squanto had told Bradford about the whites that Massasoit had killed, and if he did, Bradford could not have rested easy knowing his twenty-two men were outnumbered here more than four to one. The artist who later depicted the happenings at the first Thanksgiving couldn't have known the tension that existed below the surface, and those paintings show smiling faces, women serving food to Indians, and men from two very different cultures at ease with each other. To be fair, most of the pilgrims had a positive reaction to the three days of celebration. Some of the pilgrims slept in the Indian wigwams. Edward Winslow described the Indians were very much like themselves, very trustworthy, quick of apprehension, and ripe-witted. The treaty that the pilgrims in Massasoit had agreed to months before held for years and secured the pilgrims a place in the new country while providing Massasoit the opportunity to build back his disease-decimated tribes and hold back the warring Narragansetts for years. 
Bradford had his share of governing problems in the coming years, the growing divide between the two sects of colonists, the pilgrims and the adventurers. Responding to the constant threat of the Narragansetts and providing for the colony's defense, the lack of oxen and horses to drag timber to the colony for walls and buildings, the alignment of work, and the ownership of property. At first, the men would tend the communal field and grow crops, while the women folk would tend to the business of raising children and providing domestic services. No one owned their own property in the beginning. It was a sort of a commune in which the efforts of all would contribute to one pot. But human beings are all different. Some work harder and more often than others. It's a fact of life. Some are inventive and find new ways to produce more. Some try to cheat the system. Some like to sleep in. Others see this and complain. And fights and squabbles were constantly breaking out as the more industrious settlers became angry that they were doing most of the work and should be entitled to a greater share of the reward. Worse yet, new people were arriving. Serious food shortages resulted, and the colony was in trouble. 1622 had been a disastrous winter for food shortage. By April of 1623, after months of failure, the communal system was ended by Bradford, and workers and families were given ownership of their own land to farm. A remarkable change came over the colony. Spirit soared. Bradford wrote, The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn. The colony had learned the difference between communism and capitalism. Although times ahead were difficult, they never starved again after 1623. In Bradford's book of Plymouth Plantation, he wrote, The failure of this experiment in communal service, which was tried for several years, and by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients, applauded by some of later times, that the taking away of private property and the possession of it in community by a commonwealth would make a state happy and flourishing, as if it were wiser than God. For in this instance, community property, so far as it went, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment which would have been to the general benefit and comfort. For the young men who were most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time and strength in working for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong man or resourceful man had no more share of food, clothes, etc. than the weak man who was not able to do a quarter of what the other man could. This was thought an injustice. The next nine or ten years saw much conflict with outside tribes as well as competing Englishmen who built their own fort twenty miles away from Plymouth and created problems enough for Bradford. Miles Standish was brutal in his treatment of Indians that showed any signs of war, and while he was treated as a hero at Plymouth, he also suffered criticism for his actions against the Narragansetts and other tribes, especially other tribes that either scattered in fear or just refused to trade for food and supplies. As the years passed, the Indians, having exhausted the beaver and fur supply and trading for European goods which made their lives easier, began to sell their land. Were they cheated? No. They didn't place much trade or dollar value on land to begin with. But I'm not here to argue the endless schism that developed as a result of the clash of cultures. It's history, and that clash has been going on all around the world since man arrived on earth, and that's another story for another time. There is no doubt that the arrival of European culture permanently on the shores of the New World, and the speed at which that culture settled, explored, and moved west, meant huge changes for the Indian way of life. I see it this way. 
Throughout history, different cultures have moved from continent to continent and fought as they did, some wanting power, some wanting wealth, some just wanting freedom. And man, by his very nature, is aggressive. He will fight for what he wants, and he will fight to survive. The best times are the times, such as that October week in 1621, when we can place aside our troubles and our enmities and bring different cultures together in peace to celebrate life and living and a hope for a better future, something we all have in common. The fall harvest celebration is a common occurrence throughout the world, but Thanksgiving, in the spirit of setting a day aside to give thanks to God for our blessings, is uniquely American. It has become a part of our national culture, and it's celebrated by all colors and creeds as a time to bring families together and have some fun and give thanks for the fruits of our labor. Thanksgiving Day is a national holiday here in the U.S., proclaimed as such by Abraham Lincoln back in 1863. He had been duly impressed by the work of Sarah Hale, who for 36 years had been trying to make Thanksgiving a national holiday, earning her the nickname, the Mother of Thanksgiving. And finally, Sarah Hale succeeded. The first Thanksgiving proclamation was issued by George Washington in 1789, in which he called on Americans to express their gratitude for a happy conclusion to the War of Independence and for the successful ratification of the United States Constitution back then in 1789. America's time on Earth is but a small slice of the human saga, but to those of us who understand and study history and can look at both sides, America holds a unique and proud place in the world picture. I'm looking forward to this year's Thanksgiving together with the kids and family. It's been a hard year for many people due to COVID-19 and the fact that many people's jobs and incomes were affected. There will be time for prayer for that, and there will be time to give thanks to the Almighty as well. In my way of thinking, we're all lucky to be alive at this time in history, and in a way, we're all pilgrims facing an unknown future, but absolutely certain that by the grace of God, we'll be able to deal with it as it comes. Thank you so much for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. If you'd like to support our show, and we hope that you would, please go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's Patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. I'm very well aware that we're pressured from all sides to give here and give there. When it comes to this podcast, this is something that I work on full time. I've been doing this for five years, and my goal is to tell history the way it happened, as well as to share legends and mysteries and stories of uncommonly brave and courageous people. And I think we do a good job here. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of research. I do love what I do. And I do especially appreciate the support we get from our Patreon patrons. Anywhere between 2 and $5 a month can go a long way to help us. And we appreciate that help very much. Meanwhile, if you're an Apple lister, please do stop and give us a review. We appreciate reviews very much. That's how people find us. In fact, I have a few new reviews for you today. This first one, five stars. Great show. Well-researched episodes and presented in a straightforward, factual way. Excellent podcast. Down from Super Duper Fred, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, Lost Dutchman, Brian McDonough. Fabulous. Thanks, John. Down from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great podcast, five stars. Great podcast, well-researched, informative, and very pleasant to hear. Down from Marcelo, TL, Apple Podcast, Brazil. And this one, Real Treasure, five stars. John, thank you so much for curating such a wonderful group of stories and presenting them so expertly. 
It's a real joy to discover writers and stories that I would have otherwise overlooked. Down from Dan P., Laguna Beach, California. U.S. And this one, worth your time, five stars. My wife suggested listening to podcasts at work to help get through the days. Stumbling upon John Hagedorn in his 1001 series of podcasts has been a great surprise. Well-researched and well-spoken. John and his podcasts are an excellent way to whittle away some time. Down from Rollin 33's Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, from Mr. Surratt. Five stars. Thank you for your well-told histories. Your research is impressive. Your storytelling style is inviting. I'm happy that we connected. God keep you in the shadow of his wings. Down from Dunkirk, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one sparks my curiosity. Five stars. A vast treasure trove of interesting and often fascinating stories. Quite a few are new to me. Well done. Thanks. Down from Oro de Dio, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Tim from Austria. Simply my favorite podcast and podcaster. Well done. Down from Shibi Little Annoying, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great alternative. This podcast is like having a friend say, have you ever heard this story? I love that I can listen to so many different stories I really didn't know about. John has also made me search for more information on a topic. I've been listening for a week straight. Great stuff. Down from Jedi Tanker 72, Apple Podcast. Thank you also very much for taking the time to stop and write us these reviews. It helps other people find our show. We thank you very much for doing that. And we welcome you all and appreciate you all being listeners. Until next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big.